We are teaching the book of Acts. Acts is how this thing got started. It's brilliant. Um, uh, you, you, I think, are supposed to compare what church is to the original. And when we start comparing to the original, we can get way off track. So Acts is a great book to study through and keep saying like, are we like the original? Because we're supposed to be. So that's kind of what we're doing. We do that right on Sundays and then Wednesday night at seven o'clock, we pick up whatever we didn't cover, theologically usually more theology driven than kind of sermon driven, um, gospel driven on Sundays. So uh, you're welcome to join us, seven o'clock right here. Acts 17, verse 16. I'm gonna read a bunch. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Jesus, we thank you for giving us life and breath and being. We pray we would take those talents 
and invest them in that which will last. People, your kingdom. Would you equip us this day to better understand the world we live in and the place that we inhabit in it? And I pray this in your name, amen. So, quick note before we get into what I wanna talk about. There's an idea that when you look at ancient people, they were superstitious idiots. And because they didn't realize how the world worked, they would believe in weird things. So they didn't really know where babies come from. They thought maybe a stork drops them off on your front porch. And so they believed in the virgin birth. And they didn't really realize that when dead people die, they mostly stay dead. And because they didn't really understand that, they believed in the resurrection. So these are these ideas that we kind of have that, hey, you know, that's why they believe in the resurrection. What happens in verse 32? Paul mentions the resurrection and what do these people do? They mock him. Dude, come on. Dead people stay dead. Right? I actually believe that ancient people were more intelligent than us. And there's been studies that have shown that the average IQ of the world is actually decreasing. And that ancient people were much smarter than us, right? And I think technology is actually feeding into a decline in intelligence. Like this, who here memorizes phone numbers still? Do you know that's a very good thing for your brain? That it helps your brain stay sharp? But why don't we memorize phone numbers anymore? I got a phone, smartphone. It memorizes them for us, right? Directions, who like remembers where to get somewhere? Man, I don't anymore. I'm like, just put it on the phone and listen to her. Hey, turn left at hundred feet. Like you don't have to think anymore. You can just go on total autopilot, right? But maps in the mind are really helpful. They actually are super good in all these things, right? But now we're outsourcing that more and more and more. Everyone used to have in their crew, the fact guy, right? You just always ask the guy who could call up trivia like that. Hey, what does the fat guy think? Does anyone have the fat guy anymore? Anymore? Mm-mm, why? Google it, right? Just Google it. I will see in service when I'm talking about something, people Googling what I'm talking about. At least I hope that's what they're Googling. Like, mm. They'll like correct me. It wasn't 1987, it was 1997. Oh, thank you. I'm looking at it right now. I'm looking at the Wikipedia, right? So we have all this technology that actually is helping steer us towards stupidity. It's a bummer. So ancient people knew dead people stay dead. This is not something that the Discovery Channel figured out 10 years ago. It's like, wow, hey, dead people don't normally rise again. Wow, let's do a special one. No, for 2000 years, the resurrection has been a troubling thing for people. Like how in the world do dead people come back to life? All right? I just want you to notice that and we'll get back to it at the end. So here's what Paul's doing. Second missionary journey. He comes to the city of Athens. Now, what is Athens known for? Yeah, philosophy, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. 
It's the birthplace of democracy. It's this place where thinking men would go and they would hammer their ideas out. It's the, it was the center of the thinking world. If you took Cambridge and Oxford and MIT and Harvard and you condensed them together into one location, you'd have Athens. Brilliant place of thinking and reasoning and intelligence. But he doesn't just go to Athens. Verse 17 tells us this. He goes to the marketplace. It's the Greek word, the Agora. And the Agora was the center of Athens, which is the center of the thinking world. And in the marketplace, here's what you had. You had, yes, buying and selling, but around that marketplace, you had schools and universities and courts and lawyers and entrepreneurs and business people and philosophers. And they would all gather there and they would talk about stuff, thinking, ideas, ways of life. And they would hammer them out in the Agora, the marketplace of ideas. I tried to think like, is there anything like that in Grants Pass? Hmm, an Agora in Grants Pass, I don't know. Like where people come and debate and talk about ideas and you sharpen and you interact with other kind of philosophies and ways of thinking. The RCC library, I don't know. I don't think we have one. Probably the internet is the closest thing that we have. Because on the internet, all ideas have their space. And you have to go on there and you better be able to reason and talk them through because other people that have very good ideas about other ways of doing it will hammer you, right? On the comment section or whatever it is. Maybe that's the closest thing. So Paul has to take Jesus into the marketplace of ideas. He doesn't have a privileged place. He doesn't have the, the corner on the market. He has to go there just like anyone else and present and reason. I think that's really important. Because there's an idea, I think, in some Christian's mind that Christianity is supposed to have a privileged place in the market of ideas in America. If it had that, and that's arguable, it does not have that now. That that privileged place where it's kind of sacred and don't say anything wrong or, or whatever it is, like it's, it's sacred, that's gone now. And I think that's the best thing in the world. Because there was a time in church history for about a thousand years where Christianity had the sacred spot. And if you look at it, it was very bad for us. There wasn't a, a sharpening, a movement. There wasn't answers to questions that, are, that people really think about. We didn't have to, why? Because be converted or be killed, which is not healthy evangelism. So instead now, Christianity has to come to the marketplace of ideas and show and prove it's true, which is good. Really good. That's what Paul does. He takes Christianity to the marketplace of ideas and says, let's talk. And while he's there, he encounters the two predominant philosophies of the day. Epicureanism and Stoicism. And these two, if you know your philosophy, it was the Greeks' way of dealing with the inevitability of death. So at some point, the Greeks began to say, hey, we die, so how do we live today? Since one day this is going to end, what should that mean for us today? And they came up with two polar opposite ways of living. Epicureanism was this. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That was their philosophy. Pleasure. Pleasure is God. Whatever makes you happy, the pursuit of happiness, go for it, make yourself happy. 
The highest pleasure is the goal. That was Epicureanism. But the Athenians did not invent Epicureanism. In fact, there's a book in the Bible that addresses Epicureanism. It's the book of Ecclesiastes. And in Ecclesiastes, you have a guy that actually goes through all these philosophies. And one of them is Epicureanism. So I want you to quickly turn there because I think it's a really important philosophy and, and, it's, and it's doing something to our culture today, okay? So turn with me, if you would, really quickly to Ecclesiastes chapter two to see this philosophy of life called Epicureanism. So if you don't know Ecclesiastes, you could say it's the book about the man who had everything. His name is Solomon. He's the king. He was wealthy. He was handsome. He had peace with all of his neighbors. He did whatever he wanted at a level, we'll see, that would be illegal today. So he does Epicureanism. Look at this, Ecclesiastes 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. What's that right there? Epicureanism. Let's go for it. Verse three, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. I'm just gonna go for it. It's all about happiness. It's all about fun. It's all about enjoying myself. It's all about pleasure. So notice what he does. I'll read this and we'll go back through it. Verse four, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. Epicureanism. I took whatever I thought would make me happy. That's what I did. And he goes through these stages almost. Stage one is verse three, wine. So for a period of time, he gives himself to just partying and he parties hard. And I know there's some young guy in here who's like, Bible dudes don't know how to party. I know how to party. You should have seen the party I had on Memorial Weekend. Woohoo! Okay. In 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 22, there is a list of the food and the wine that came into Solomon's house every single day. That food and wine, someone figured it out. It was enough to feed and party 15,000 people. Okay? That's how Solomon rolled. 15,000 people at my house. You may have turned on your boom box with Spotify or Pandora Premium. Look at my playlist, right? Verse eight, he bought the singer. Right? I just bought RCA. So Taylor Swift, you're playing at my house from now on. That's the way he lived. 
It was massive, okay? So your little shindig on Memorial weekend is preschool compared to Solomon. He's varsity, level you can't imagine. But at some point he's like, ugh, man, I'm tired of waking up in my chariot with a brand new tattoo. I'm gonna try something else. <laughs> so he's done partying and verse four, he starts to build. I'm gonna build stuff, man. I'm tired of that partying things. That's not that fun. I'm gonna build. I'm gonna put my name on buildings. I'm gonna make myself Solomon Tower, Solomon Plaza, Solomon Lake. I'm gonna do that. So he builds. He builds again at a level you and I can't imagine. He works on the temple, one of the ancient wonders of the world for seven years. After he's done with that, he works on his own house for 14 years. Yeah, Matt, I've been working on my house for 14 years. Okay, he was not fixing up a double wide. It's not what he was doing. <laughs> he wasn't making a hobel. You know what a hobel is? It's a mobile home you turn into a home. You sort of add on to the little parts of it and you end up with a hobel. <laughs> That's not what he was doing. He had 10,000 people working every day in his house. It is a massive, massive endeavor. And then he starts making palaces for his wives, which we'll find out was a lot of palaces. So he builds huge. And then when he's done building, he starts landscaping. And he's not planting a hydrangea with some perennials, right? He plants a forest and then he digs up a lake to water his forest. So it's like, yeah, Umqua National Forest. Yeah, I planted it. Crater Lake, yeah, I dug it to water my forest. Whoa, dude, that's awesome. Like to this day, there are places in Israel that you can go and you can see where he has done this stuff and it still exists to this day. Like massive, massive level. And then he gets tired of that. He's tired of accomplishing things. I've accomplished everything I want to accomplish. So verses seven and eight, he goes for ease. I might've had people do everything for me. I didn't do anything that was hard. I had a servant to do it. These almonds are too hard. Someone chewing up for me. Hurry up. Like that level of just ease, just relax. So verse nine says, I became great. He's a popular dude. You have 15,000 people over at your house at night and you wine and dine them, you're gonna be popular. People will be like, I don't even like you, but man, this is awesome. You're great. You're a great host. This is fun. And then verse 10, he says this. The desire of my eye, I did not keep from them. What's the desire of a man's eye? The ladies and Solomon, who he loved them ladies, 700 of them and 300 concubines. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines, okay? That is a thousand women, 24, seven, 365. There's not an eye color. There's not a hair color. There's not a body shape that he did not have access to whenever he wanted it. Here's what's so fascinating about that. In chapter seven of this book, he reflects and he says this, of a thousand women, I have not found one. You know what he just said? I'm still, on, still looking, still looking for the one. I thought it was number one, no it wasn't. So I thought it was number two and it wasn't. And I thought it was number three and it wasn't. So I went to 10, I went to 20, went to 100, went to 1,000 and I'm still looking for the right gal. How ridiculous is that? He bought into the lie that many people buy into to today. That is, there's one for you out there. There's your soulmate. And it's just the one for you. If that is true, 
then someone a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago ruined it for everybody because they married the wrong person. And from then on, everything just got jacked up, right? I mean, it's the most ridiculous idea. It's stupid. There's no such thing in the Bible as a soulmate. If you're looking for your soulmate, you will find him or her right next to the unicorn and the Oompa Loompa. Good luck. (laughs) The Bible says you need a help mate. I know my wife is the one for me because January 15th, 2000, I married her and I said, I do. And she became the one for me, period. That's how I know. So Solomon, he just falls into this lie. And he lives at a level that you and I cannot imagine. Building, partying, women, you, you name it, right? You couldn't do this today. The Me Too moment, movement would have you in. They would tear you apart, right? You can't do this. So how did it work out for him? Look at verse 17. So I hated life. I hated life. First party was awesome. Thousand people on my pad. And then went to 1,500. Then 1,000 more. Then 15,000, man. And we're doing it night after night after night. New stars, new people, meeting awe. But at some point, it became Groundhog's Day. Really, I'm doing this again? Really, you puked on my carpet again? Really, you're gonna tell me that same story? That's a stupid story. You've told me that 14 times. I don't wanna hear a stupid story anymore. Get out of my house. Tired of this. It became Groundhog's Day. And everyone that parties hard, they'll tell you the same thing. Yeah, eventually it became Groundhog's Day. It's like stupid. We're doing the same thing over and over and over again. It doesn't get any different. Right? So he started building stuff. And he got tired of building stuff. And he planted stuff. And he got tired of planting stuff. A thousand women got tired of them. So he says, I hate my life. Then verse 18, I hated all my toil. Maybe I'll find purpose in my job. That'll give me purpose. Now I hate my job. What was his job, by the way? He's the king. <laughs> How can you hate that job? <laughs> Some reason, man, the satisfaction that men should get from a job well done wasn't happening for Solomon. I hate it, hate my job. Then verse 20. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. The end of this time when he's exploring the philosophy of Epicureanism, pleasure as God, he comes to the end of it all and he goes, I hate my life, I hate my job, and I'm suicidal and depressed. How crazy is that? That's what he says. Our problem is this. We can't live at the same level as Solomon, right? We can't do it. We can't build like he built. We can't have a thousand wives, right? You just can't do that. It ain't happening. You can't do it to that level. So out in front of us for our whole life is this carrot that says, if you just had that, if you just had that job, if you were just king, if you just had that woman, if you just had that man, if you just had that house, if you just had that accomplishment, if you just build that building, if you just buy one more thing, there's always a carrot out in front of us and we keep chasing the carrot until one day, we're hooked up to tubes in a hospital. And we say, why did I do that? Why did I do that? We need to learn from Solomon. But we don't have to learn from Solomon. 
it seems like to me every month we get a new Solomon, someone that lived this level and says, it stunk. Did you read about David Cassidy? Did you read that article on him last week? If you don't know who David Cassidy is, if you're young, David Cassidy was Justin Bieber in the 1970s, right? Teen heartthrob, women throwing themselves at him, everything you could want, like just famous popular guy. So they do this documentary on him, he's passed away. And they did this documentary at the end of his life. And he starts talking about his life. And he says this, I lied about dementia. So he told everybody he had dementia to cover up some behavior that was actually the product of his alcoholism. So he was trying to cover up that as an alcoholic saying, man, I don't actually, I'm not an alcoholic, I have dementia. But he didn't. And he said, the reason why I drank so heavily was to cover up my great emptiness and sadness. David Cassidy, dude that made it to the top, live large, what? You're sad and empty? You got everything I want. And he found out just like Solomon, it didn't do it. You ever heard of the 27 Club? It's this list of celebrities who died at 27. Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain, Amy Winehouse, on on. People that made it to the top. And then at 27, for some reason at that age, they got to the top and they didn't like the view. You mean I've worked so hard and tried so hard for this and this is it? And almost all of them died under strange circumstances. Because they're just replaying Ecclesiastes chapter two. And I spent a lot of time on this and I won't do this to the Stoics because I think Epicureanism could just be replaced with Americanism. The pursuit of happiness, pleasures God. We get it feed, fed to us all the time. Instagram, man, go out and have fun, man. Look how much fun I'm having. You should have this much fun. It's just now fed to us. And here's what, if you're paying attention, there is an epidemic right now of suicide. Did you know that? I'll give you some stats from the CDC. There's been an increase from 2005 to 2015 of 47% of suicides in 12 to 17 year olds. That almost doubled. I mean, everyone, everyone that has kids should just be like, what is happening? Why are we doubling the rate of suicide in our kids? Sobering. The overall rate for everybody from 1999 till 2050, and we don't even have the last three years. And I think the trend is gonna be even worse it's gone up 25%. Like suicide used to not make the list when it came to leading killers of people. Now it just keeps jumping up five, 10 spots. It's now the number 10 killer of people. It's just boom, it's like nothing before. And they say for every suicide, there's 90 attempts at suicide. Like those numbers are staggering. When you think about it and look at the numbers, I know this, in this room, this size, there are people right here sitting in this service that have gone down this road and they've despaired in their heart and they've contemplated suicide. And some probably in here have attempted it. That's what statistics say. It's heartbreaking to me. Heartbreaking because we're fed this lie that fun is gonna make it all good. Epicureanism. And I think we, you, you just find people go down the same route every time as Solomon. He figured it out. 
and, and in talking with and dealing with people that have attempted suicide or thought about suicide, here's what I found. They believe one of four big lies. Number one, things will not get better. I've made mistakes. I've lived a certain way. This is the world that we live in. I am this way. I pigeonholed this way. Things will never get better for me. Listen, if you are a believer in Jesus, you have to know the king has come. The kingdom has begun. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. One day, every tear and every disease will be wiped away. That's the promise for you and me. The Bible says right now, you are more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus that that is a demonic lie and it takes no faith to believe a demon's lie. It is not true. That's lie number one. Lie number two is I can't take it anymore. I'm overwhelmed. I can't do this anymore. It's breaking me. Please know that is a very human emotion. Moses had it. Elijah had it. Paul superhero of the New Testament, Paul, 2 Corinthians 2, I am despairing of life. The circumstances that hit him there, he said, I despair of life. I can't take it anymore. Jesus, Matthew 26, in the garden of Gethsemane, asks his disciples, come pray with me. Why? Because I'm despairing of life. Jesus, our hero, faced that human emotion. Here's what Paul found. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse nine. He says, there's a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan tormenting me. And I prayed three times, God, take this from me. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. And God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect and your weakness. And Paul changes everything then. He says, now I glory in my weaknesses, knowing that in my weakness, his strengths are made perfect. Paul's perspective on everything changed. You mean I can tap into a resource? I'm gonna tap into that resource. You gotta know this. You gotta know this. Lots of people struggle with that. It's normal. The key is to get around people who will love you and keep preaching to you the good news. You need to talk with somebody. That's what you need to do. If you don't have anyone to talk to, talk to me. I'll be here after this service. If you're embarrassed, email me, matt2ts at edgewaterfellowship.org. That is step one, you have to talk to somebody. And if you're dealing with somebody who's, doing, who, who's feeling suicidal thoughts, you don't have to have a brilliant message for them. Sit, listen, and cry with them. That's all you have to do. The best comfort you could ever give to somebody is to say, I just love you and I'll sit with you in the darkness. You matter. I care for you. And I'll just cry with you. That's the best thing you could ever do for somebody. Okay? Third lie is, this one's really hard for me. The, wor the world would be better off without me. So I sat by the bed of my little brother who swallowed a hundred prescription pills. And the doctor was saying, I don't think he's gonna make it. It's too much, too late. Say your goodbyes. And he did pull through. And he told me this. He said, the reason why I did it is I thought the world would be better off without me. It's a lie from the enemy. Listen, if you're a believer in Jesus, here's what the Bible says. 
It says Ephesians 2 verse 10, that there are good works that God has prepared for you in advance. That there's stuff that God says, I have you in that family. I have you in that job. I have you in that city. I have you in that place because you and me together are gonna do great things. Join with me in that, participate with me. And if you're not there, who does those works? It's a lie that the demons of hell are feeding into your mind and you have to refute them with the truth of scripture. And the last one is this, it'll end the pain. Suicides are the tsunamis of pain. The hardest things I've ever had to do is walk with families through suicide, okay? Don't believe those lies. Get and talk with somebody, please. Because it's just gonna get worse. This Americanism of Epicureanism, the pursuit of happiness, is just gonna lead to this. You'll get to the top, you'll be like, that's it. You'll despair of life, okay? So Paul has to face that idea in Athens. He's gotta face it down, he's gotta talk about it. He's gotta reason it out, that's the first one. The second one is the Stoics. Polar opposite. So eat, drink, be merry for tomorrow we die. Epicureanism over here is the Stoics who said this, stiff upper lip. Duty, do what's right. Doesn't matter you're gonna die, leave the world better than you found it. That was Stoicism. Does that help you with death? I don't think so. Because if in the end you die, why does it matter? If one day the sun goes out, and the world and the universe goes to negative 273 degrees Celsius. Who cares if you were good or bad? Who cares if you built great things or you're nice or kind, or if you just laid on the couch covered in beer cans and Doritos? Who cares? It doesn't matter. Nothing matters. They didn't answer the big questions. They didn't do it, okay? And if you think about yourself for a second, if you get underneath a lot of what worries us, and stresses us, and bothers us, and, and even motivates us. Like, why do you wanna do great things? Why do you exercise and why do you diet? Why do you take that pill that helps you remember to take the other pills that you're supposed to take? Right, why do you go buy new clothes? Why do you get haircuts? What's, what's driving all this? What's underneath it all? It's one thing. You want to last. You don't want to be a vapor that appears a short time and disappears. That's in all of us. I've called it the echo of Eden. We want to count. We want to matter. We want to last. And we can feel this gun to our head in, in, in a way that's saying, you're not going to last. You're not going to last, right? So I had this, this conversation with my college buddy named Dwayne Londigan. He was a track star and lived with us. And I was in a really dark time in my own life where I just didn't believe in Jesus. I didn't believe in the Bible. I didn't believe in Christianity. I just didn't believe in any of it. And so I said to Dwayne, I said, you know what I wish? I wish life was just, you were born, you lived however you wanted to, you had fun, you did what you wanted to, and then you died and you became fertilized and that was it. And Dwayne's like, really? And he, he's like the most mellow guy normally. He became super intense. He's like, really, Matt, that, that's how you're gonna live? Then, you, boy, you better not be sitting here right now. You got limited time. Get out there and have fun, man. 
Fun, 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 fun. Go out and have fun. Don't you ever sleep in because, man, the clock is ticking and you just wasted time on having fun. So you better get after it, buddy. Go have fun. Fun, 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 fun. And he just left. I was like, man, that was not fun. I'll tell you that. Dude, you're not fun. But he's so right. He's so right. Like those don't answer death. They'll exhaust you. They don't work. So into this idea that we all have that we should count, we're not to be vapors and we, and we wanna last into that realm, that marketplace of ideas, Paul brings Jesus and the resurrection, verse 18 says. He preached Jesus and the resurrection. Now we don't have what he preached. We do have the message he speaks to the Mars Hill crew. And you can read that, it's brilliant. It's cut off at the very end. But here's what I think Paul did. I think Paul reshaped the biblical narrative for them. And maybe he did something, this, this video, it's a 90 second video. The guy is phenomenal. Uh, I think he did something just like this guy right here does. Check this out. In the beginning, there was light and life and love. There was a father loving his son in the joy of the Holy Spirit. And everything has come from light and life and love. And out of this has come a world that is destined to share in light and life and love. But you know that this world is not like that. I know this world is not like that. I look around and I see darkness and death and disconnection. Where's that come from? Well, we've turned from the light. And when you turn from the light, where else do you go but darkness? And when you turn from love, where else do you go but disconnection? When you turn from life, where else do you go but death? So this is the kind of world we live in. But what does, what does love do when love sees the beloved in trouble? Love says, your pit will be my pit. Your plight will be my plight. Your debts will be my debts. Your darkness will be my darkness. Your death will be my death. So who is Jesus? Jesus is love come down. The son of the father comes and, and becomes our brother to be with us in the darkness, to take that darkness on himself on the cross, to take that disconnection on himself, to even to take that death that we all deserve for turning from God, took that on himself on the cross, plunged it down into the hell that it deserves. And he rose up again to light and life and love. And he says, you in the darkness, do you want my light? You in death, do you want my life? You in disconnection, do you want my love? And anyone who simply says yes to Jesus, we get Jesus in our life. We get his father as our father. We get his spirit as our spirit. We get his future as our future. It's for free and it's forever. So do you want Jesus? I watched that video and I just think I should quit. <laughs> Man, are you kidding me? The guy's just brilliant. I think he did something like that, reframed it in a way that people say, I can feel that. I can feel that it should be light and life and love, but it's darkness and disconnection and death. That's what I actually feel. So he presented Jesus as the savior, the king who has come and brought his kingdom. And that by joining with him, we participate in that kingdom. And we are able then to do things that last and matter. And he presents the resurrection that was mocked. Dead people stay dead. They mocked him for it. Interesting, it happens again to Paul. It's in Acts chapter 26. He's not in Athens, he's now in Israel, where Jesus lived, was buried and resurrected. And in Israel, he's talking in Acts 26 to two very important people, a governor, a Roman governor named Festus, and the king of Israel named Agrippa. 
And he talks about Jesus and he says, and Jesus rose again and Festus, the Roman, stands up and is like, dude, you're nuts. Your much learning has made you insane. Dead people stay dead. This time, Paul turns and he says, King Agrippa, you know what I'm talking about. You've lived here. You know exactly. This stuff was not done in a corner. You witnessed the life, the death, and you know about the resurrection of Jesus. You know this, right, King, King Agrippa? And King Agrippa looks at Paul and says, what, are you trying to make me a Christian so quickly? And stands up and leaves, because he knew it. He knew it. Paul stakes everything on the fact that the people in Israel knew about these events, and the tomb was empty. He staked it on that. If you struggle with the resurrection in Jesus, can I recommend a guy named Gary Habermas who does the 12, it's called the 12 critical facts of the resurrection. And by critical, it means this. Critical scholars are people that say, Jesus was not God, that kind of stuff. That they don't buy the Bible, they don't buy Christianity, they don't buy Jesus as God, they don't buy that. He takes the 12 facts that they will agree with and uses those to reason the only way these things make sense is through the resurrection. It's brilliant. The resurrection happened. Jesus is alive, okay? So then how does Jesus and the resurrection help us in a way that Epicureanism and Stoicism do not? Pleasure and duty. They're, they're really the liberal side of life, Epicureanism, or the conservatives, just do what's right. How does Jesus come in the middle of that and the resurrection help us in that? Here's how. There's this illustration by Donald Barnhouse, who's this incredible preacher from 100 years ago, less than that, 75 years ago. And his wife had died and he's driving back from the funeral with his little kids in the car. And they're tore up and they're worrying about death. And it's scary. And how do we answer that? And so Donald Barnhouse is trying to figure out, how do I explain this to my kids? And as he's driving, this big truck passes him goes by him and the shadow of the truck passes over the car. And he looked at his kids and he said, kids, would you rather be run over by a truck or run over by its shadow? And they said, by its shadow. And Donald Barnhouse said, kids, here's the good news. Jesus was run over by the truck of death. So you and I just pass through its shadow now. That death has lost its victory. Death has lost its sting. That has been defanged that it doesn't have the power it had anymore. And that's what the New Testament says to us. So Paul would say this, Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ, man, it's beautiful, it's awesome, but to die is gain. Because it's then that all the unfulfilled longings and all the, ah, oh, I could be better, and all the angst is finally fulfilled and I become what I know I'm supposed to be. What I was way back in Edom and Adam. That, that's what I'm supposed to be. And I become that when I pass through that shadow, right? I hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest, enter into my joy. Rule with me the way we're supposed to. That's why Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, these light afflictions are but for a moment, but they're working for us an exceeding great weight of glory. Life has affliction, but Paul says this because of Jesus because he took out the truck of death. 
what's happening now in you is this, all the tilling and all the work of life with its affliction. It's like death is no longer the executioner, it's the gardener. And one day, all that this life has done to you will blossom and it's called the resurrection. And you'll become something, C.S. Lewis said, if we could see ourselves in our glorified states, we'd wanna worship ourselves because we'll be something we could not imagine. We'll be what we know deep in our souls we're supposed to be. So that's what the Bible holds out for you and me. And when you allow this truth to actually become that seed that goes into your heart, that it's life and light and love, man, you live a life that's free and full. The gun's not at your head anymore. You take risk and live big because we serve the king who came. So we get to come to the table and the table is a celebration of that. Because Jesus says this, come to the table, remember my death, but also remember that I am going to come back for you. I started something, the kingdom was inaugurated and one day it will be completed and you will be beside me ruling and reigning for eternity. So we eat in recognition that the truck has been destroyed and that one day we will rule with our king. And we take that hope, you're able to leave here and be light and life and love where God has planted you. So Jesus, this day, I pray for any that are sitting here today that maybe have followed the path of Solomon and made choices in their life. And the journey that they have been on has brought them to a place of despair and hating life. I pray that your spirit right now would comfort them. That any lie of the enemy that is plaguing them would be dispelled by your love and your light and your truth. That they would reach out to those that are part of your body and receive help in their time of need. May they know that they're not alone. May they know that they have a heavenly father. May they know that they have a savior. May they know that they have a king and may they know that they have the community right here at Edgewater. I pray for all of us as we partake. May we go from here as conduits of the great gifts and talents and goodness. May we be those things to the people that need them. We ask this in your name, amen.